The fabulous 413 podcast is funded by Northeast Solar, offering solar options, energy security, and solutions for the local community. Learn more at northeast-solar.com. Welcome to the Fabulous 413. I'm Colise Smith. And I'm Monty Belmonte. The rivers of the 413 are swole. Perhaps even swollen. Some of our roads are washed <laughs> out, and some of our farmers are feeling the impact of the flooding. Mountain View Farm in East Hampton posted, We are still assessing the damage and impact of flooding on our fields. We have lost access to our two main fields in the flood zone, but Ben and Clover, two of the farmers there, swam to one of the fields this morning. Swam. Swam to one of the fields this morning. We'll talk about that at another time with the word nerd. Oh, and uh, as of 6.30 a.m., it was incredibly still dry. We have not been able to get to the other field yet, but we are working on it. We cannot help but be hopeful that at least one of the fields will remain dry. We know that this event has impacted farms all over New England, and we are so grateful for the kindness of our community at this time. And Grow Food Northampton posted, the water has receded, but yesterday was the largest, most damaging flood the Grow Food Northampton community farm has seen since it was founded in 2010. We still don't know the full extent of the damage, but it's likely that the devastation to the farm lessees and the community gardens will be significant. Our priority is to support the farmers and gardeners who rely on the land for their food and livelihood. In addition to what we've experienced, there are hundreds of farms up and down the valley that have been impacted. Now more than ever, it is important to support our local farms by buying from farm stands, farmers markets, and local grocery stores reach out to the farmers around you to see how you can support them. And I was commenting on the swimming to the field, which is not a thing. Okay, you I thought you were do. talking about grammar. No, no, okay. no, no. Or no. usage. No. That's no. tomorrow's show. You and a little bit later today. You don't swim to fields. Right, no. <laughs> Grow Food Northampton also posted a link to help um, to a volunteer cleanup effort if you're interested in helping get involved. You can check out their Facebook page. That's where the link is. Later in the show, we'll check on a farm that fared a little bit better in the downpours of yesterday. Meadowbrook Farm of East Longmeadow. And we'll hear the accents of Chicopee from the Gilded Age. We'll talk with budding linguist Renwood. Tomorrow on the show, hello, governor, <laughs> Massachusetts Governor Maura Healy. And Thursday on the show, MSNBC's Rachel Maddow. We know you must have questions for the governor and for Rachel Maddow. You can email them to us at thefab413 at nepm.org. Or text us at 1-800-639-9120. But first... I got a dusty old pile of vinyl records sitting on my floor. I've played each one of them over and over dozens of times more. One of my favorite things to do, and I know one of Kalisa's favorite things to do, is to come to a place like this, Crate Dig, to go through records in a record store. And we are at Platterpus Records on Cottage Street in East Hampton. What's your name? My name's Dave Whithouse. How long have you been at the helm of Platterpus? 40 years. That is unbelievable. Didn't start out here on Cottage Street. Started out in Westfield. I was there for about 25 years, so about 15 years ago I left Westfield. And that's about as long as any record store could hope to exist and continues to exist and thrive here on Cottage Street? Uh, thriving here on Cottage Street. I'm I'm amazed. I mean, my obituary or the store's obituary has been written dozens of times, <laughs> and I believe them sometimes, too. <laughs> I, you know, and, and it just keeps coming back somehow. Platterpus is one of the most clever record store names that one could come up with. It was yep. actually stolen from a store in, um, in New Zealand. 
Do they still exist? I have no idea. <laughs> but I'll have to check. A recent transplant to right down the street in East Hampton is a professor, John Dugan, who's written a book that comes out this week called The Life, Death, and Afterlife of the Record Store, A Global History. It's an anthology of record stores. So it just seemed perfect that since your book was coming out, yeah. and since there's a great record store in your new hometown, that we would have this conversation about records and record stores here at Platterpus. What brought you from where you teach with Southern... Middle Tennessee State University. Middle Tennessee yeah. State University yeah. to here in East Hampton. First off, let me just make one minor correction. I co-edited the book. Okay. I didn't write the book. Right. So Anthologies uh, are... Anthologies yeah, are yeah. usually edited. So I worked with three other colleagues of mine. What brought me to East Hampton? I, I'm kind of semi-retired now. I'm in the last phase of my teaching career. I'm an online professor. My wife and I are both from Massachusetts, and when we were talking about retirement, we decided that where were we going to go? We decided we'd come back to Massachusetts, where we're both from. We are lucky in the 413 because my favorite beloved professor of rock and roll, Dr. Steve Waxman, professor of music and American studies at Smith College, is right down the street. This is a small field of people that are doing this type of specific music history? Yeah, it, it kind of grew out of disciplines like American studies. That was my graduate program, yeah. uh, was American studies. Definitely and, not music, because I, this is a field that I tried to study when I was getting my degree and was laughed at a bunch by my professors. Aww. Yeah, it's, it, I, I understand that. That's, it's really hard to work in certain music departments. I mean, I was in a, my um, affiliation with my department at Middle Tennessee State was recording industry. And we had a collegial and professional relationship with the music department, but I wouldn't go so far as to say we were really tight. Uh, because we were more concerned with things like social history, how music affects very specific audiences, race, class, gender questions. It was a little different look at that where you're historically grounded, but you're kind of expanding the field of knowledge to look at all of these other elements that go into the world of popular music. And record stores maybe fit somewhere in the middle there because everybody that I know that went to a music school ended up working at Tower Records. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, actually, my, my history here when I was still living in Massachusetts... Uh, I used to work at uh, Belmont Records in Bay State West. That was my first job out of college, late 70s to early 80s. And I was also writing for the now defunct Springfield Daily News. I was the concert stringer there. So wow. I would go review live shows all the time. You know, I had this experience working in a record store and outside of being a professor, it was probably the best job I ever had. So the anthology that you yes. helped co-edit, yes. Professor John Dugan, is about the life, death, and afterlife. Dave Whithouse from Platterpus has already said his obituary has been written many times. Talk about that arc. I can see why people get really excited when records come out, yeah. record stores are thriving, mm -hmm. other technologies come in and threaten to kill the record, but we're in an interesting period right now where my teenagers spend yeah. almost all of their extra money on buying new vinyl records. Yeah. The reason the, the anthology came about was we were writing about a store that three of the four editors were very familiar with, and that was a place called Treehouse Records in Minneapolis. And it was run by this guy, Mark, Mark Trias. And Mark had worked there uh, when the store was under another name, and then he was closing it down. And it the, the whole anthology came about as a result of Facebook posts, because I had posted something on Facebook about Treehouse closing down. I was very fond of the store. I spent a lot of money there. And two of my other editors, Gina Arnold and Christine Feldman Barrett wrote to me and said, uh, well, we used to go there too when we were in Minneapolis. So, And it was Christine who said, why don't we do an anthology? Why don't we pull together a book and talk about what record stores were like back in the day, where they are now and where they may be going in the future. And then when we sent out the call for submissions, we were stunned at how many submissions we got from around the globe. So we realized very quickly that this was going to be an internationally focused anthology. 
But in terms of record stores, I mean, you know, we're here in Platypus right now, and this is kind of one of the classic, like, used in new record stores. It's got, you know, it's got this great vibe about it. And then there are other record stores that have turned into, like, these connoisseurist places. It's like you're going into a fine wine store or a high-end cannabis dispensary. And uh, you're, glad to, you're glad to right. be living in East Hampton now, aren't you? East Hampton. So you, you have these uh, high-end stores that really focus a lot on limited edition record store day releases. Yeah. And the old record stores, like the ones I used to work in, the mall stores, they're mostly gone. When it came to digital downloads and streaming and living in the post-Napster era, those were the, those stores were the first victims of digital downloading because they couldn't keep up. Their relationship with their consumers was almost purely transactional. It's like, I just need this new record by so-and-so or my kid needs this new record. Record stores like Platypus, record stores like the old Main Street Records in Northampton or Faces of Earth in Amherst, those were places where people hung out and talked about music and they wanted to discover new kinds of music, new artists, new genres, Whatever. So it became like a clubhouse for music fanatics. And a lot of the stores that we write about function in a similar way. They're places where communities develop. Like you have the punk record store, you've got the hip hop record store, you've got the funk R&B record store. We, there's one essay in the book about a store in France. All they sell are Madonna records. Wow. That's it. The whole What's store. the name of the record store? Um, Madonna I, City. I, I, I've got to look at the table of contents because I'm forgetting <laughs> off the top of my head. We'll edit that out. Yeah. Uh, no, we won't. So at least kinda, you're honest about it. Yeah, you're honest about it. So that's kind of where we're at right now. I mean, the stores, record stores are still important because now it becomes really focused on a community. People that come in here are really serious about music. Do you remember the scene in the movie um, High Fidelity where the guy comes in and wants to buy the Stevie Wonder song, mm-hmm. I Just Called to Say I Love You, and Jack Black basically humiliates him out of the store? Can I have it then? No, no, you can't. Why not? Well, it's sentimental, tacky crap. That's why not. Do we look like the kind of store that sells I Just Called to Say I Love You? Go to the mall. What's your problem? Do you even know your daughter? There's no way she likes that song. He's looking for a purely transactional relationship with music, whereas Jack Black and and the other people that worked at uh, Championship Vinyl were more serious about it. It was, uh, you know, more of a a cultural thing with them. Immediately from the same movie, I think of the scene where he goes, I will now sell three copies of the Beta Band's three EPs album. Right. Who is that? The Beta Band. It's good. I know. (laughs) <laughs> Which fits in the same vibe, just sort of like, this is cool, someone else in here right now is going to think that this is cool. Which is one of the things I always appreciated about Turn It Up. Turn It Up, another record another store that record has a bunch store. of little branches in a very local right. record store in the area. I'm curious how much of the book, or if any of the book, focuses on record stores in movies, in media. Because I was thinking about how many movies there are about people working in music, in like record shops. And how cool it's always looked, which is, I mean, accurate. Uh, Actually, there's a great essay that was written about High Fidelity, looking at not just the movie, but linking it with the book, the original Nick Hornby book, but also the short-lived television program. He wrote an essay that kind of ties all of that together and talks about things like connoisseur the fact that the record store in the Zoe Kravitz version of High Fidelity is really adamant about the fact that they don't sell CDs, all they sell is vinyl. That's their authenticating strategy. They're these vinyl purists. That's Professor John Dugan, who teaches at Middle Tennessee University. State University. Middle Tennessee State University. We'll edit that out. That's also true. (laughs) That's also true. No, it's not. And now has moved back to his home state of Massachusetts, specifically here in East Hampton, and we're at Platterpuss Records, a great record store on Cottage Street in East Hampton with Dave 
Dave Whithouse, who's been at the helm of Platterpus for 40 years, also worked in radio. We know a lot of the same folks. What about what the professor said rings true in regards to the community that comes and has supported this record store through the good times and the bad times and now back to the good times when first nice Led Zeppelin quote there. Yeah. <laughs> Still don't seem to care, right? There you Something go. Like that. There are people that shopped in my store 40 years ago who are still coming here, and it's amazing. It got rough. It got really rough in the mid-2000s. Because of CDs? Because of Napster? Mm-hmm. Because of both? The effect Napster had on the industry is a little bit overblown. Really, what, what hurt this industry was the ability to burn a CD on your computer. Really, yeah. You know, you would get Tuesdays used to be the day that new releases came out. Yeah. And, you know, you would get a, a group of four people would come in and say there was a big, you know, a U2 album came out. Well, maybe three of them would buy the CD and the one would say, oh, I'll be back on Friday when I get paid. Then you start seeing the four people coming in a year or so later and one would buy the CD and say, I'll burn your copy tonight. Mm-hmm. Well, I lost three sales and I'm little platypus records in Western Mass. Can you imagine what Tower and places like that were losing to that? And then you 2 goes and gives you the album for free on your phone even and, though you don't well, want yeah. it? That was just stupid. Not just on your phone. <laughs> Talk about the community, though. Is I mean, what the professor was saying was that, you know, a lot of it is you put on the beta band and people start to talk and talk with you. And there's also that, like, I've literally been in here, even though I was a music radio DJ, and was a little bit worried that, like, you personally might not think I'm cool enough. Why would, why would be that? Because there's that? this perception in the media. There's Someone's a cliff. buying Erica Badu. Good oh, job. Cliffhanger now. <laughs> yeah. This right. is exactly the community we're talking about. Yeah. <laughs> What's your name and where are you from, if you don't mind saying? Um, I'm Dylan. Talifer. I'm from Holyoke, Massachusetts. Yes. You bought the Erica Badu. What's your name? My name is Finn. And where are you from? I'm from Holyoke, Massachusetts. What are you getting? Come over here. Okay. Let me see. Let's see all the goods. You got. You, you also got... were picking out really great things. Um, Erica Badu is on CD, which is technically vinyl, I think, too. But Harvest by Neil Young. Nice. I'm getting Black Sabbath. Ooh, nice. Dio era Sabbath. <laughs> uh, this one, Neil Young, Crazy Horse. That's my favorite Neil Young album. After Everybody the, knows it's nowhere. The gold Rush. A lot of Neil Young. Yeah. If you don't mind me asking, how old are you? I'm 17. So you're 17 and you're buying all of these classic rock albums, used versions, Crosby, Stills, Nash, and sometimes Swy, um, but not on this particular album. Um, And the Stones, is this the music that you listen to most of the time? You have a Grateful Dead shirt on. Yes, I do. Not judging you. But uh, yeah, I have a really big record collection because my dad gave me most of his, and most of his are like 80s new wave, and I... I'm now like, okay, now that I have this big-ass collection, I'm going to keep expanding. Nice. And so, yeah. What is it about vinyl when you know you could go get all this stuff for free? Everything is free now, as Gillian Welsh says, and it's all on the internet. It's just, I don't know. That's what they say different experience. I like listening to it and it's like how it was supposed to be listened to. Dave from Platterpus, is that who's coming in to buy records? Is, is it 17 year old? They're, they and are. The four people that have been shopping for four And, and what, it, uh, what amazes me is she's buying records I bought when I was 17 <laughs> brand new. Those records are 50 years old. That would have been like me buying something from 1922 yeah. or 20, which wasn't going to happen. <laughs> so it really has the staying power of the music too. Professor John Dugan, who's written a new book about the life, the death, and the afterlife. You can go. You can. You, you, we'll give you a receipt. Thank you for talking. Yes, thank with you for us. talking. Who's written a book about the life, the death, and the afterlife of the record? So a new anthology that's coming out uh, later this week. Is this what you're seeing? The the type of purchases that are being made, or is it a combination of new and old? Uh, yes, younger students. You know, again, I spent 22 years in higher ed, and I saw multiple generations of students coming in, and there were many students that I had who had their musical history passed on from their parents. Bye. Um, Bye. See ya. Enjoy those. But 
the balance is whatever they're listening to now in terms of what they're streaming. There is a relationship with vinyl that I think for people that are buying vinyl now, younger people that are buying vinyl now, they see that as a more kind of intimate relationship with listening to music. You know, it's more physically active. It's not just scrolling and tapping or clicking a mouse or whatever. It's, you know, actively putting a record on, dropping the needle on it. There's a whole, reading the liner. It's an event. It's an event. Reading the liner notes. It's, you know, it's, it's all of that as opposed to just, you know, streaming stuff and one of my problems with streaming is I would build playlists on Spotify and I would forget what I had when I bought records and at one point I had 3,500 pieces of vinyl I think I only bought the same record twice on maybe three occasions because I knew everything I had. The reason that some younger people are going back to vinyl is they want to relive that experience because to them it seems to be more meaningful. And because everything exists in this virtual realm right. for so many young people, so many of their friends and their friendship interactions are all virtual. To have right. something analog and tangible is right. powerful. It's one of the reasons why I still like making mixed CDs for people. Yeah, no, think <laughs> because about how important that is in like the, I mean, it, the romantic life of young people. I know. Okay. <laughs> Not just the romantic, like I used to have a ritual where when I rented a car I would make a mix to take with me on the trip and then I would leave it in the car and leave Mm -hmm. I would just write out the tracks and like (laughs) leave it either like somebody at the rental place took it whatever or like the next person who rented the car would get this mix and I miss the like concept of like going through my collection of what I have like trying to craft something cohesive and giving it to people I still do mixes for people's birthdays I don't know where they can play them now but it's the gesture that counts yeah I just bought a new car and for the first time doesn't have a CD player or, yeah, yeah, or yeah. cassette player. So yeah. it's like times they are changing. Well, another thing about uh, younger people or younger generation getting interested in vinyl is the fidelity of the recordings, but also the concept of ownership. In the streaming era, in the digital era, you don't own anything. You pay for access. So you don't really have anything. You can show me a bunch of playlists that you've put together, and yeah, that's a thing, but it's not a tangible physical thing. If you have a big record collection it's a ta- or a CD collection, it's a tangible physical thing that says something about who you are, the kind of music that you like, but how many of us run around and say, oh, you want to you look at my Spotify playlist? There's an aspect to that that I think is more real than the virtual realm. I have to ask, does anyone have a real explanation for the resurgence of cassettes? No. No. Dave from Platypus says no. No, Professor? No, I have no idea. I, I mean, I could make a longer social commentary on us regressing as like a nation and going back to ideas that we left ages ago and one of them also being the cassette and us just kind of like walking backwards through time to things that we really shouldn't be bothering with but i was hoping somebody had a better explanation i think it's big pencil what are you going to need a pencil for except for good point you know rewinding you don't want to keep like tapes like tapes yeah yeah i don't understand that at all Um, you know, I, it wasn't I, a great technology to begin with. No. It was the only portable technology we had back in the day, and it was a hell of a lot better than an A-track, which right. is what it replaced. Yeah. But everything since then has been so much better. Can I yeah. say to your, your hip-hop point that, like, all people are putting out vinyl now, but, like, the crate digging is what happens yeah. in hip-hop. Like, we're coming oh, to pick yeah. up these albums, but we're coming to, to remix them, to reform them in new and interesting ways. So, like, the record store has always been the backbone of the hip-hop community, and I'm pretty sure that it will remain so. <laughs> it was early rap and hip-hop where we discovered that turntables and records could be instruments. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, that, that that scratching and mixing back in the day, whether it was uh, Africa Bombada, whether it was uh, Grandmaster Flash or whomever, that you were taking the record and now turning it into a something that you recorded music on, something that now you could turn into an instrument like you would turn a guitar or, or anything else into an instrument. And it was great. From your 
perspective as a professor of American studies, of music, of music business, mm -hmm. John Dugan, newly living here in East Hampton down the street from Platterpus, is this going to crest? Is this something that you think is, is here for the long haul? By this, I mean yeah. the resurgence of buying records, vinyl records. I think it's going to stay, but I think at some point it's going to plateau. I mean, when you look at the price of buying a new vinyl pressing now, you're probably paying somewhere between $25 and $30 for it, which seems expensive, but if you think back to the 70s when you would come into my record store that I worked in in Bay State West and pay 6 or $7 for a record back in 1978, if you look at the rate of inflation, to pay $25 or $30 for that same sealed record now new, well, that's just the price of doing business. But I, I think it will plateau at some point and just maintain that level for a while. But here's the weird thing. I'm already seeing articles about the return of the CD, that people are buying CDs now again, that CDs lost their luster very quickly. You know, when you think about it in the history of recording technology, the lifespan of the CD was shorter than the lifespan of the 78 RPM shellac disc. Oh. You know, that existed from the early 1900s to basically the mid-1950s, the early Elvis records. Some of them were pressed on 78s. The point being is, is that everything has its own coming Thanks again to Professor John, Dug John Dugan and Dave Whithouse from Platterpost. The book Life... The Death and Afterlife of the Record Store Global History is available this Thursday. Soon we'll discover how the people of Chicopee sounded in the Gilded Age when we talk with linguist Ren Wood. And up next, a farm with unlikely origins that made it through the recent rains mostly unscathed. Meadow Brook Farm and East Long Meadow. You're listening to The Fabulous 413 on NEPM. Back in the early 80s, uh, I started with 16 rows of strawberries, which comprised about three quarters of an acre. That was my first uh, stab at uh, uh, farming business. You're doing a lot more than uh, 16 rows now. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Time for our local hero spotlight with Jacob Nelson from CESA and John Burney, who's the farmer and owner at Meadowbrook Farm in East Longmeadow. I think when people think of East Longmeadow, farms aren't necessarily the first thing they think of, but your farm is maybe the largest farm we've talked to in the time that we've been doing this show. For sure. 400-ish acres? Yes. In East Longmeadow and spans into other parts to Hamden County, even parts of Northern Connecticut? Yes, yeah, we farm in about five different towns. Uh, East Longmeadow is our home base. Uh, we also farm in Hamden, Mass, Summers, Connecticut, Enfield, Connecticut, East Windsor, Connecticut. So we have to travel for quite a distance in order to get the uh, farmland. Yeah. Right. I don't think people necessarily realize that not all of that is like your farm specifically, some of it is rented. What's the important uh, importance of having lands that you have access to that aren't necessarily a part of your core farm? Uh, that's a good question. Uh, agricultural land in the vicinity is very um, scarce. Properties don't come up for sale that often, so you have to take what you can get, what you can use, and we often uh, uh, rent land in order to get the uh, put together the 400 tillable acres. That's an incredible amount of land, as we had mentioned. How many farmers are you working with to maintain that land? Uh, well, that varies depending on the season. We need a lot of hand labor when it comes to harvest time. Mm -hmm. So at that time, a peak of maybe 30 uh, employees. And that'll be a little bit later in the season, or has that already started? No, we're, we're harvesting now. We're harvesting uh, cabbage, green squash, yellow squash. Uh, just started with some cucumbers. 
soon to come will be tomatoes, peppers, eggplant, and sweet corn. How long has this farm been in existence, John? Uh, I built the first greenhouse in 1990. When I was 12, I used to deliver papers, and I, I didn't grow up in a farm family. But for some reason, I just had an interest in agriculture since I was a little kid. So at 12 years old, delivering papers, I don't know if anyone remembers the old B&B market, but the owner of, uh, of that market, which was right in the center of Nislong Meadow, was raising sheep. And he was lambing out some sheep right in his garage. So I was a kid that always had a million questions. So I'd ask him, you know, all about the sheep. And he says, why, do you want a job? And I said, yes. He he taught me how to drive a tractor. That was my first job on a mini farm. After that, worked for a couple different places. And then I, um, uh, the, the home farm where the greenhouses are now, where my retail business is, was owned by a retired dairy farmer. He had sold the cows in the 60s. Some of the older people would remember the name. It was Han Farm, and he actually used to pedal milk for the individual wow. household. <laughs> so I, um, I, I became friendly with him, and uh, he was up in his 80s, and I used to help him do tractor work when I was home from school on the weekends. And he never paid me, but he said, why don't you try raising some strawberries? And I think the reason was he didn't want to make the investment. thought it was a good idea, but he, he didn't want to make the investment himself. So um, he was generous enough to let me use a piece of land. It was actually a piece of rented land that had a big utility pole in the center of it. And he didn't want to drive around the utility pole anymore. So he says, you can use that little block of land there and you can use my equipment. I thought, okay. It was actually leased land from Western Mass Electric Company. And then he was good enough to put my name on the lease. So when he passed, that, that automatically Uh, went in my name. That was the first farm that I purchased. But my point being, it's important to follow your passion. I wasn't raised in in a farm family, always had an interest in agriculture, and I never thought that I'd be on the production side of agriculture. When I graduated college, I um, worked for farm credit banks, loaning money to other farmers. And I always thought I would be, I I didn't ever see a pathway to becoming a full-time farmer. I, I was farming uh, after college, farming um, uh, part-time with a pick-your-own-strawberry operation, and we also picked a few berries for the local Big Y stores. So our relationship with Big Y goes back to the uh, early 80s. Then it got to the, to the point was I had to decide whether I wanted to be a farmer or a banker. Mm-hmm. So when, uh, And you chose farmer. Yeah. So, I mean. Let's see, 1989. <laughs> I uh, I quit the bank and became a full-time farmer and never looked back. The legend continues. Yeah, right. How many farms are left in East Longmeadow? Full-time farms. Um, Is it just you? Well, there's uh, Graziano Gardens, which has some greenhouses. You find that people in the area of like East Longmeadow and, and nearby are finding your farm set. Is, like, is it like a name that's been known and people just kind of pass it on? I, I think there is some name recognition there. We have a, a loyal group of customers. Obviously, we're always looking for new customers. <laughs> we hear you're doing pick your own blueberries, which is wonderful. Sorry, I love I <laughs> that like tone blueberries. tone of voice, Khalid. <laughs> it's because my brain froze for a second. <laughs> because I was imagining the sweet goodness that is blueberries and then all language stopped working. Yeah, I know. Oh yeah, blueberries, which I like. No offense to any 
body, especially my mom who hates them, but I prefer blueberries to strawberries. Me too. They're my favorite berry. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. They're, I know it's a controversial position to it take. It is a very controversial <laughs> position. Not in this room, apparently. <laughs> yeah. So where can we find yours, John? That was our latest venture. About three, four years ago, I purchased a uh, blueberry farm, which is virtually right around the corner from our farm stand. Uh, the property hadn't been maintained in the past uh, uh, five to 10 years. So we've done a lot of work as far as um, pruning and uh and maintaining the bushes. So this will be our third fruiting year uh, with the blueberry farm. Did you experience a bit of loss with the the May frost too, or did it mostly leave you unscathed? No, we had some substantial loss in the blueberries, the early varieties. It was a very unusual situation with May 18th. Uh, it got very cold, uh, so we did lose some of the early varieties, but the mid and late season varieties look very good, and the average size looks better than last year. We're speaking with John Burney from Meadowbrook Farm, a, a huge farm in East Longmeadow and beyond. Yeah. Jacob Nelson of CESA. Yeah, John, you said pick your own blueberries are right around the corner from your farm stand. You want to tell us a little bit about that? And then I know that's also not the only place to get your produce, so... Right. Uh, we have a combination of retail and wholesale business. Big Y is one of our major customers, and we go into Big Y every day. In addition, we go into the um, New England Produce Regional Market, which is located in Chelsea, Mass., and we have a truck going in there every day. How does that work? The, the regional market there is like a re-wholesaler. They'll sell to other farm stands or institutional business, uh, a lot of supermarket business. How big a piece of the puzzle is that for your business? I'm sure it's great to have a more local connection with a big market like Big Y, but how big of a percentage is it business-wise for a 400-acre farm to be going into this regional market in Chelsea? Dollar-wise, it might include uh, maybe 30%, 30-35% of our overall sales. But the reason why it's important is we have a lot of uh, different grades of produce. Uh, big Y in the supermarkets want number one produce and mm-hmm. the best the best that we can pack. Whereas um, with any crop, you get some off grades. Uh, in the case of peppers, you get a suntan pepper or medium-sized pepper. In the case of summer squash, you get medium squash, which is bigger than what the supermarket's like. So we need to have a home for our off-grade stuff. That's one of the big reasons why we like going into the uh, regional market in Boston. Because they'll find a place to place it. Correct. There's a lot of logistics that go into this, but I I think one of the key things that I'm reminded of in this conversation is just how important it is to have local farms that are as big as you are and are able to wholesale to grocery stores. As we're growing the local agricultural movement and the local agricultural economy, there's room for farms of all sizes. Uh, But it's really important to have farms as big as yours that are growing as much as you are and can sell it at at price points and at volumes so they can show up in the shelves because that's getting local food out to many, many more communities kind of all in one fell swoop than some other smaller farms are able to. And that's that's one of the superpowers of a farm like Meadowbrook Farm. And Not I know to mention, like, lessening the carbon footprints of those supermarkets. If you can get all of that stuff locally, yeah. it means that you don't have to fly it out or have it trucked out to you right. so far. Like, it benefits everybody by being able to get it here. Yeah. Sure. And you're selling right into the kind of the distribution system that already exists. Mm-hmm. And that's that's pretty cool. Yeah. We, we have started out the conversation by saying East Long Meadows not really known as a farming town. But that hasn't always been the case. 
it was a farming town at one time. People need to recognize the importance of maintaining a viable local agriculture you know, or else there is going to be nothing left. And when um, you set up shop in these new farm locations uh, and pick up more pieces of land, that is preserving it for agriculture as opposed to it being a condo complex or something. Exactly. That, that's the, that's the uh, best long-term way of preserving land is having a business model where you can farm the land profitably, then it will take care of itself. Uh, but right now we're getting squeezed by solar farms, development, things like that, which lessens the amount of tillable land in the area. Yeah, there's been an interesting debate across the country, but in Western Mass in particular in certain locations about wanting to put on large-scale solar in land that could be tillable. But uh, right. is... my, my personal opinion on that is, of course, it's biased. I'm a farmer, but why take good farmland and put solar panels on good farmland? There's plenty of wooded property, steep property, property that doesn't lend itself to, isn't considered prime farmland. And I, I think that's where the uh, solar farm should be looking. Perhaps every flat roof in Springfield <laughs> could have a solar farm on it. <laughs> Like if, if you could maybe start with allowing some of the historical buildings in the historical districts to have <laughs> solar. I'm just saying as someone who lives there and has realized that only just now have they started allowing the houses to have solar because of outdated regulation. We could do that too. But that's neither here nor there. That's an entirely <laughs> different conversation. We're speaking with John Burney, the farmer and owner of Meadowbrook Farm based in East Longmeadow and Jacob Nelson of CESA, the local hero folks. John, you mentioned... 400 acres, 30-ish employees during harvest season. And we keep hearing about employee shortages in all sorts of different business models. Has it been hard for you to find people to come and be part of the harvest? And where are the folks that are working on your farm coming from? Most of the labor force is um, uh, coming out of the Springfield area. It is difficult to find a consistent labor force. We have a good nucleus of people that have been with us a long time that do an excellent job. But as I mentioned earlier, during harvest season, we have to pick up the extra people. Time will tell on this season how we do at that. Mm. And John, you mentioned in addition to people that have been working with you a long time in the fields, there's people that have been working with you for a long time at the farm stand. Our our business is uh, maybe a third uh, retail business where we sell the products retail at the farm. And uh, there's one key employee that's been with me for a long time that's been very instrumental in building that retail business. Everyone knows her as Veronica or or Ronnie. She knows most of the customers by name and uh, has been a tremendous asset in building the retail business. It's huge and important to have those people committed to making this sort of thing be successful and being a big pivotal part of the community. John Bernie, the farmer and owner of Meadowbrook Farm in East Long Meadow. Thanks so much for joining us. And Jacob Nelson of CESA, the local hero. Folks, you can find out more about all of our local hero farmers in the four counties, or at least three. Go to buylocalfood.org. We know a lot of our farm friends in the area were flooded out yesterday. Tomorrow, we'll ask the governor what her office and the new Office of Rural Development can do to help those farmers out. Got a question for the governor? The Fab 413 at nepm.org or text 1-800-639-9120. Up next, a young linguist named Ren Wood has been studying the accents of people of Chicopee during the Gilded Age. And we'll talk with them about some of the things you might have heard then and may still hear now. You're listening to The Fabulous 413 on NEPM. Welcome back to the Fabulous 413, a listener email. 
Hello folks, here's an idea. I meant to send a couple of months back after I heard this young person's presentation at the Chicopee Library, sponsored by the Chicopee Historical Society. Their name is Ren Wood, and the presentation was Voices of Chicopee, a survey of the city's languages in the Gilded Age. They talked about the variety of accents that you that would have been heard on the streets, but best and nerdiest and what I hope will be your word nerd, nerdy focus, they read a speech that was actually given a hundred or so years ago in the manner in which it was probably heard at the time with many long gone pronunciations. It was quite something to listen to. They are a linguist and... They had us go through the international symbols and their sounds before delving into the big mystery of how anyone today could possibly understand what local speech sounded like in the past. It's so interesting. Great stuff. Emily Brewster type stuff. I think they would be a fascinating interview and get them to do the speech. Signed, Deirdre Godfrey. And while Emily Brewster, resident wordster from Merriam-Webster, was unable to join us today but will be with us tomorrow, the aforementioned linguist... Ren Wood joins us today. Thank you so much, Ren. Thank you for having me. I have to say that your name sounds like the alias of a superhero. A linguistic superhero. Almost. You don't have that double W at the beginning uh, of it. <laughs> Wonder Woman. Clark Kent. Uh, yeah. Now, we t- heard about this speech from a, a time in the Gilded Age in Chicopee, and a little bit about how you deciphered this when there were no recordings at that time, right? You couldn't listen to a recording and, and, and impersonate the speech, or could you? There were some pretty rudimentary recordings. They were recorded on these wax cylinders. Uh, I've actually gotten to play one of those and start one of those up. Uh, Is it like a cassette tape that we were talking about <laughs> with Platypus Records earlier? Oh, uh, yeah, pretty much. You know, the cassette of the... 1890s. Nice. You could only really fit. <laughs> Can't wait till the revival of those come back. <laughs> What's to say that there wasn't a small one in like the I, 1930s and probably, 40s where they're like, we was. should go back to this? They but, actually did briefly become collectible in the 30s and right? 40s. Wow, see, exactly. Ren knows all this. Now, um, but that is that how you were able to decipher what it would have sounded like in that time, or is it this code that was referenced by Deidre Godfrey? No, what it, what I actually did was I would go through the the writings of various linguists or travel writers, especially from New England. Uh, So that means looking for stuff that Noah Webster wrote, Uh, stuff that uh, William Dwight Whitney, a less well-known linguist uh, from the Valley (laughs) that he wrote. Uh, And the other main one that I had was a man named Timothy Dwight IV. Comes a little bit before the Gilded Age, about 80 years before the Gilded Age. <laughs> but interest, it's interesting to look at what he wrote. He was not a linguist. He was a minister and president of Yale College, uh, or Yale University, rather. Um, and what he did was he traveled a lot. He wrote about it. And much like many people still do today, he made fun of the way other people spoke. And... <laughs> said that people from Boston were sounding ridiculous. Oh. Did they sound as ridiculous as we all still sound sometimes we now? Cleese and I are both uh, both have Boston accents that have mostly fallen off, but we were even talking earlier today about where we still uh, where they still stick out like a sore thumb. Yeah. Well, one of the things that he actually thought was the most hilarious was you find this in one of his travelogues. It is several pages long of him making fun of this 
quirk of Boston speech that does not exist anymore. It kind of fa- uh, faded out in the 1820s where they would swap uh, W's and V's. Oh, Actually, um, my aunt does this. Yeah, this still oh. happens. I didn't know that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I hear it all the time. But it's, I thought it was a speech impediment. Oh, no. Uh, but it, I, can, I grew to learn that it's just her accent. There was, there was a time where it was the thing to do in <laughs> 18th century and ni- in early 19th century eastern Massachusetts. Yeah, and that's where my family's from. So this is very fascinating to me. But you are, <laughs> And you were also from there originally. Yes, uh, I'm from the South Shore. And then you went to school in Albuquerque? Correct, uh, University of New Mexico. And is that where you developed your love for language in this way? Oh, I loved language and linguistics well before I moved to Albuquerque. <laughs> I actually moved to Albuquerque because ah. of my love for linguistics. And now you're in Chicopee. You give this speech at the Chicopee Historical Society, and then you become a board member. Is that what happened in a nutshell? I was actually already a board member. Oh, okay. Uh, <laughs> so this wasn't like your test to get in. <laughs> like, this person knows so much. It, it, about it was, I would say it was more my test to show that I could actually put a presentation together. <laughs> <laughs> and that maybe people would be interested in a proposal down the road. Right on. <laughs> I love that. We're speaking with budding linguist Ren Wood, who's been studying the voices of Chicopee, a survey of the city's languages in the Gilded Age. And you're doing this for not just Chicopee, but other communities nearby. So far, it is just Chicopee. I, w- I am interested in trying this out for other towns and other communities all throughout the valley or throughout New England, since that's my main interest, my main focus area. Do you expect to see quite as much variety as you found in Chicopee and in the surrounding towns? Oh, certainly. It definitely depends. Uh, But I have looked into examples of other towns. For example, you have Everett, Massachusetts. A lot of people try to sleep sleep on that one. But (laughs) I'm here to tell you that Everett is actually the most linguistically diverse (gasps) town in Massachusetts. Why? Uh, I don't actually know. I haven't gotten that far. Give us an example of like, how is it linguistically diverse? Basically, more than any other town in Massachusetts, if you took two random people from Everett, Massachusetts, they have the highest chance of speaking different languages from each other. Actual different languages, not different accents of English. Correct. Different ah. languages. Okay, that's okay. cool. That, that makes sense. That is really cool. That, that is really cool. And they don't have a historical society, so I can't ask. <laughs> but uh, that would imply that like, if they speak different languages, that their, their spoken English would also be different. So I think it works on both levels. Yeah, it would develop into its own type of accent. Yes. To some extent, yes. Ren Wood is a budding linguist, a young person, part the uh, by decades, <laughs> says our uh, fan Deidre Godfrey. You say that like we don't encounter them in the. Oh my gosh, they're no, but a young person. I mean, by decades younger for the <laughs> Chicopee Historical Society than anyone else on there. I want we got to take a break, but then I want to hear your rendition of this speech from the Gilded Age of Chicopee, uh, like Deidre Godfrey heard. You're listening to the fabulous 413 on NEPM. <laughs> Scottish. Oh my God. Welcome back to the Fabulous 413. I love accents, and so does Ren Wood, a budding linguist who spoke at the Chicopee Historical Society about the accents of Chicopee in the Gilded Age. And listener Deirdre Godfrey wrote to us about Ren and said, You've got to have them on your show. And we agreed. And we agreed. And now we're going to hear Ren's Ren edition. Really? I had to. Of what Chicopee. Disc. 
sounded like in the Gilded Age in a speech from 1897 by Edward Whitman Chapin, a local politician who recounted the day he saw the Holyoke Dam burst, which is all too uh, relevant for what's gone on this week. When the first dam was built at Holyoke, the Connecticut River rebelled against being stopped and broke away from its restraint, carrying the dam with it in its curse. As I stood by the riverbank in Willamancet when a boy and saw the river filled with timber and logs sweeping past, I recall old Mr. Sykes, who was then a member of this congregation, always read it with some Bible quotation, repeating on this occasion a verse from Proverbs. As he watched the turbulent waters bearing away the timbers of the new dam, wilt thou set thine eyes upon that which is not? For riches certainly make themselves wings. They fly away as an eagle toward heaven. That is so cool. That is cool. It sounds very Irishy. Is that it where it's mostly coming Canadian. from? Canadian. <laughs> yeah, it's a hodgepodge, which is where accents come from, I guess, right? At, at this point, you still had some people who would have been born in the Ulster in County Ulster in Ireland, some people born in Scotland. But really, this was bef- uh, about, I'd say about 30 or 40 years after the main sort of waves of migration from Ireland. Uh, but you do sort of get that sense in it. You get a sense of just how many Irish people arrived in in Western Mass. Uh, something to consider, though, is that this speaker, Chap- uh, Chapin, he uh, doesn't come from an Irish background. He's actually, you know, descending from one of the oldest uh, families within Chicopee, one of the founding families of that of that city. How did you get that interpretation? What did you do to use to know that that's how he would have said things? I love the uh, Wheatins kind of reading where you say the WH. I know people that say it that way even to this day. <laughs> Wheatins. How did you uh, interpret it? So uh, part of it was going back to those linguists that I found earlier. One of them, William Dwight Whitney uh, from Northampton. <laughs> <laughs> uh, he, he was born and grew up in Northampton, eventually went to spent a lot of time in, time in uh, Williamstown, uh, where he went to college at the age of 15. Wow. <laughs> uh, and even though he specialized in Sanskrit, this language that was historically spoken in South Asia, he, in one of his books, wanted to get give people an impression of how he personally sounded. And so he is re- trying to express in this book how he sounds, but only using the letters of the English alphabet. They hadn't invented these international symbols uh, in for for linguists so that we could be super nerdy about how we all sound (laughs) there there was a time where people published entire journals in these wonky international symbols uh but it's more fun to read it phonetically like that right yeah yeah a little hard to read it when you're when you're already reading very dense linguistic research from like 1880s i can't imagine trying to get through that and then structure like a criticism of what you're reading (laughs) but uh he helps kind of give us a sense of how people sounded in the valley. And we also get a sense of how his speech may have differed from most people. He was very educated. Uh, he probably did not get to have that much contact with the 
everyday person, the common person of <laughs> Western Massachusetts. Uh, for example, he mentions in his in his book that he does not pronounce R's after vowels. So this is a person from Western Mass who was saying that he drops his R's. Draws. Yeah, draw. <laughs> yeah, and then you add them where they don't belong. Like my wife's name is Melissa. Uh, that's, ca- that's called linking, uh, linking R. Does that Boston accent in your study of linguistics and accents in Massachusetts, Renwood, is it a hang, a hang up, a leftover from, from England? Because if you listen to British English, you park the car in Harvard Yard, which is not a very far leap to park the car in Harvard Yard. It's the dropping of the R's. Is it a British thing? The linking R, as far as I know, is not coming from British English. Uh, I believe that kind of comes in well after a lot of the British influences in uh, New England speech sort of have melted away or kind of been forgotten about in some cases. Some some things hold on uh, a bit more strongly. Uh, I we sort of see the dropping of ours in Boston English starting around, I believe, the 1810s. You have we have some sources of it of our dropping happening in London as early as the 1770s, mm-hmm. 1760s, ah. and it, it starting to catch on in Boston around the Revolutionary War, and that, but it doesn't really become associated with Boston until I would say the early to mid. Uh, 19th century. What's the coolest thing about learning local history? Mm. <laughs> I know. The, the hardest <laughs> questions. <laughs> Oof. The coolest thing, I would say, is being in a place and getting to imagine it in a way that is totally different from how it is now you i feel like when you try to incorporate linguistics into local history it makes people who are no longer here feel more real you can get a sense of how they sound um and this i would say kind of ties into you know we can even go further back we actually can reconstruct uh you know 18th century english for example i didn't do that but uh ben franklin name dropping him he actually also Created, created his own sort of writing system of how English sounded when he spoke it. That is linguist Ren Wood, who is a member of the Chicopee Historical Society. I can't wait to hear you again talk more about the accents of the 413. Let's do the uh, outro with our best Boston accents, uh, Khalees. Why are we going to do this? Tomorrow on the fabulous 413, Massachusetts Governor Maura Healy on West East Rail, a new Springfield courthouse, or whatever you have for the governor. And on Thursday on the show, MSNBC and the 413's own Rachel Maddow. She's got a new podcast with Isaac Davey Aronson called Deja News, and they'll both join us. I bet you might have questions for them, too. The Fab 413 at NEPM.org or text us at 1-800-639-9120. Tomorrow is the governor. Thursday's Rachel Maddow. We'll see you then on the fabulous 413. I am so embarrassed. Don't mess with Mr. In-Between.